Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. I just had to pause and restart my intro because I said welcome back to another episode of Kill Rockstar, but that would be incorrect. That is the name of the record label, Kill Rockstars, that Portia Sabin, my guest today, is the president of. It is not the name of my podcast. The podcast is Middle Class Rockstar. Anyway, I had the privilege of interviewing Portia when I was in Portland a few weeks back uh, for a residency at a place called Al's Den, which is the listening room uh, in the basement of the Crystal Hotel. And it's right across the street from Powell's Books. It's right in the thick of downtown. And Portland's a great place. I, I really enjoyed my time. I, I did my last couple episode uh, monologues in the hotel room. So if you listen to those, you already know I was out there. But I, I really felt like a local at the end of the week. It feels very... Denver-like to me. There's there's a lot more water uh, in both the good way and bad way. There's a ton of rain, but also there's you know rivers and stuff, which we don't really we don't really have uh, large flowing bodies of water running through downtown Denver. Kind of a cool thing about Portland. Anyway, I had a great time. I got to do an interview on the Portland Radio Project. Met a lot of really cool people. Hung out with some old friends, uh, my friends and brother, not brother. My good buddy Dan Cable, who has a podcast, Dan Cable Presents. Uh, I got to hang out with him. That was awesome. He actually was the middleman that helped set up this interview with Portia. Um, and, and she invited me to her studio where she was uh, recording some monologues for her episodes of her podcast, which is entitled The Future of What?, so two great music podcasts for you coming out of Portland, if you haven't heard of them, The Future of What and Dan Cable Presents. I, I highly recommend both of them. I regularly listen to both. Um, anyway, we talked about a lot of great things from touring, marketing, social media, getting signed. I think it was a great conversation, and it was the first time where I didn't record the episode. It was recorded in her studio by her engineer, and they sent me the stems. So that was that was pretty cool. I wanted to mention also Rachel Miller, who was on a, a previous episode of this podcast uh, several weeks back, actually interned at Kill Rock Stars, um, Porsche's record label. That's cool. Maybe go back and listen to that episode after this. Um, and the episode that just came out a couple weeks ago, if you haven't listened, was with Kai Turner, who has ran the radio program Strictly Blues on 103.5 The Fox for the last 20 years. And my next interview coming out in two weeks is with David Dondero, who's a legendary singer-songwriter. Uh, he's on NPR's list of top living songwriters with uh, Paul McCartney and Bob Dylan. So he's a really, really interesting guy, and, and he, he just travels around the country in a car by himself and, and goes and does shows. He does some of the booking himself, but he has a booking agency, record label, and uh, and he just just goes around and does it pretty much all year round. So David's a, a really interesting guy, and uh, I also had Nick Clark as a guest host on that podcast. He was on a previous episode of Middle Class Rockstar as well. Anyway, I'm excited for you to hear my conversation on music business with today's guest, Portia Sabin, the president of Kill Rockstar's record label out of Portland, Oregon.
Okay, so we're we're rolling. People will hear this right now. <laughs> yes, broadcasting to the world. Yes. Well, thanks for joining me, and actually, I'm joining you. So yeah. thanks for that. <laughs> You're welcome. It's working out perfectly. It's like we're mutual hosts here. Yes. Yeah. You're, and is this your host seat? Is this where you this do? This is my it? host seat. Yes. Okay. This, this is where I do it. All right. Well, this is a this is a first for me. I think the first out of state podcast I've done. Ooh. Yeah. I'm usually sitting in my basement in Denver. <laughs> so this is a treat. <laughs> Yay. Um. So I want to, uh, you know, a lot of these episodes have been interest pieces on the bands where we you know talk to a band for a while play a couple songs and then i've started doing a couple of informative episodes as well we just had a tax accountant for musicians on and with you on today i'm wondering if we can kind of do a mesh of both mm, yeah um why not yeah so I, I just maybe starting off where where you came from how did you get into the music industry to begin with i used to play in a band i mean i've played in many bands as we all did um, but I did play in a band that got signed to a small independent label, and we um, made a couple of records. We went on tour, and we sort of did the, you know, that the thing, yeah. In back in the day, and after I left that band, um, I decided to use my small amount of knowledge to help my friends' bands, and so I started a management company, and I did artist management for a few years, and then I ended up. Um, getting asked to take over Kill Rockstars in 2006. My husband, who had started that record label, decided he wanted to do something different. And he actually asked me if I would take over the label and shut it down. And uh, and so I thought about it. And at the time, I was also working, my, my actual work work was in academics. So I had a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Washington. And I was doing that. And I really wasn't enjoying it. And I was also managing bands. Um, and so I decided that this was my big opportunity to like pick one, you know, where am I going yeah. with my life? So, uh, so I decided I'm going to start, I'm going to run Kill Rockstars and I'll, I will also manage artists and, and that'll be my thing. And I'll be a hundred percent in the music biz. Wow. So this was in 2006. Okay. And, um, what ended up happening was I signed a couple of artists. We put out a few records. We actually had 27 records that were already slated to come out in 2007 Wow. So we put out all those records, and then I was like, hey, this is fun. I'm enjoying this. Why Why? Why would I shut this down? Yeah. This is great. <laughs> well, and what did he mean by uh, shut it down in the first place? Take it over and then just kind of ease out of it sort of thing? Yeah, I think he I think he thought that, you know, maybe it was time for the business to end. But um, it didn't. <laughs> it's been almost 13 years. He's, ha he's happy about that, that it's still going? Oh, yeah, he's happy about it for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think he wanted it to shut down. I just think he thought that was sort of inevitable like that was where we were going my husband is a is a true visionary uh in many senses of the word and and he i think really saw the um he predicted the the coming of digital and i think he thought that that was going to actually blow up the marketplace i thought i think he thought it was going to ruin our 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 opportunity to sell product which in a lot of ways it has you yeah. know um but you know we adapt as a market and we've we've tried to stay afloat i I want to jump actually right into that because you made a great point. How has that affected your market and what have you done to, to stay afloat in the new market with the digital age? Well, in a lot of ways, I mean, just like I tell artists all the time that, you know, part of making it as a musician is, um, you know, you have to have talent, you have to have hard work, but you also have to have a modicum of luck. And I think for us, um, luck was an element as well as hard work and being lucky enough to have great artists on our roster. 
Yeah. Um, just because we have some, you know, it's like we have uh, a whole bunch of Elliot Smith records and Elliot Smith is a, is a timeless, great artist. Uh, so people are always going to be interested in Elliot Smith, no matter what format. Yeah. And some artists like Elliot uh, are actually quite interesting in that he sells like 80% physical. Uh, that may be because he's deceased. It may not. I'm, you know, a lot of legacy artists do sell more physical, and I think it's because it gives some people something to hold on to. I think it's a little bit more of a treasured thing when you have something that you can touch and 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 keep on your shelf and look at um, than digital, which feels a little bit more ephemeral. Yeah. Um, but so we were lucky in in that regard. And then also, I mean, the the marketplace. We just did our best. Indie labels have always been. They we have the advantage in as a rule of being small and kind of nimble so we can move things around a little bit. If we have to cut overhead, which we did, I had to cut a bunch of people and I think it was 2010 mm. or 2011, um, just to stay afloat. And we, and that's an unfortunate thing, but when you're dealing with, you know, a company of less than 10 people and you have to let a couple people go, it's, a it's, easier than if you're dealing with a company of 6,000 people and you have to let 600 people go or whatever, you know, it's, right. it's definitely a, a scale thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we did, we had to make some cuts. We had to sort of pull in our belt, tighten our belt. Um, but then the market started coming back in, uh, one, when Spotify hit, uh, we started seeing a little bit more action. And so certainly 2014, 2015, 2016, we're, we getting better. And then 17 and 18 were good years across the board in the music industry. We've all done much better. So the fact that this label started before the digital eras maybe helped out a little bit with the transition. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think so, for sure. Definitely. Wow. And do you have any current artists that are selling high physical relative to what they're doing digitally? Absolutely. I mean, every artist is different. I mean, that's the thing that's quite, it's always fascinating to me. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of like a music business nerd. Like I, I kind of like the data stuff. It's fascinating to me. Yeah. So we have a, a new artist. Well, there, it's a super group of older artists from, uh, Corin Tucker from, um, Slater Kinney and Peter Buck from REM and yeah. Kurt Block from the Fastbacks and Scott McCoy from Young Fresh Fellows. And they're called, um, uh, Filthy Friends. So they're, we did a record with them in 2017, <clears throat> pardon me. And then on this record, which comes out in May, uh, Linda Pittman is their new drummer, but it was Bill Rieflin from Ministry. Um, so they, they sell much more physical than digital. And I think it has to do a lot with, uh, you know, if you have an older audience, older audiences buy more physical as a rule. Um, but also I think it has to do with uh, what has been successful in streaming and when you look at Spotify, for sure, I mean, absolutely, they've done great with rap and hip hop. They've done great with EDM and they've done great with pop. But when you look at other genres, they're massively deficient. So, I mean, yeah. you know, stuff like blues and jazz and classical and gospel and punk and, you know, some of the more alternative indie type stuff that we do. There just is a very small footprint um, on digital. And I don't honestly think that's because the people who are fans of that music um, don't want to stream it. I think it, I, I mean, I think it just is is a focus thing. I think there's been very little marketing and very little money put into that. I think a lot more, you know, it's like rap caviar and some of those big playlists. Yeah. And I also think um, it has to do, 
you know, I, I feel like the, the byword of, of this period is Netflix and chill. Right. You know, I <laughs> yeah. feel like that's kind of how people want their music experience to be as well. Um, we joke all the time about, you know, it could be anything and chill is your playlist title and, and right. that'll be, that's going to be successful. Um, because that seems to be what most people are, are trying to do these days and they want their music experience to be that as well. Right. So, um, I just feel like the, yeah, the streaming services don't hit the genres that we tend to excel in quite as well. That said, our biggest artist on streaming after Elliot Smith is a band called Horse Feathers, yeah. which is a previous Portland band now in Astoria band. Um, and they stream like crazy, but it's got something to do with, you know, they have a very mellow, like beautiful vibe. Um, so they, they fit those chill playlists really yeah, well. Yeah, the demographic that's listening. <laughs> that's good to know. Uh, I'm going to start a playlist called Heavy Rock and Chill, and we're just going to see what see happens. See what happens, exactly. Yeah. I think you should. <laughs> Why not? See if it works. Yeah. Um, and s to jump back just a little bit, Kill Rockstars was founded in 91, is that correct? Correct, yeah. And was the first, I think I read somewhere that it was spoken word yeah. at the beginning. Yeah, my husband was a spoken word artist, and so he put himself and his friends out, his spoken word record. So the first record was a split seven-inch with him on one side and Kathleen Hanna on the other side, because she was doing spoken word at the time. And um, we had a whole spoken word, we have a whole word core series, basically. Um, and then the first full-length was a, a CD compilation of his friends' bands. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Um, let's see here. So I want to talk a little bit about um, an, an indie artist. First off, your label, as you were saying, is very small, and it got even smaller in 2010. How many total are on staff? Well, now we're kind of up again. We're back. We have eight. <laughs> oh, my is, gosh. Yeah, we're... We, it's it's it really depends on the marketplace too, like what you need in terms of people and 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 the stuff that people can do, um, and the stuff that the marketplace is doing. So you know we never needed a digital marketing person before 2011, and then suddenly that was like a desperate need. Um, now we have somebody who's just dedicated to social media, who does all the social media stuff. So um, you know that's a very important job these days that didn't exist you know a few years ago. So yeah, we sort of we have to cobble it together with um, a bunch of different people. Oh, sorry. I just hit the cord. Um, as well. <laughs> um, so as I actually, I think that's kind of funny because I, everybody knows Kill Rock Stars. It's a label that's been around for a while. And, and you say the name like, oh yeah, Kill Rock Stars. And there's eight people on staff. That's, that's amazing to me that you guys get that, that much done. And that's, I don't know, that's really neat. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we, I mean, we've had like five for a really long time. So eight is like kind of, we're like massive now. Yeah. That's a big company. <laughs> Compared to how it was. So let's, let's take a, an artist through the team a little bit here. Somebody gets signed to your label. Um, then what? And I know it's different for everybody, but what are you looking at for an, an indie band that gets signed in terms of, um, releasing a record, marketing strategy. I, I kind of want to sit in on a day in the office with you. Okay. Well, uh, it's harder and harder to sign artists because of the marketplace. Um, it's very difficult to get, uh, you know, the, the forte of indies has always been uh, breaking new artists. That's kind of what we did. Um, that isn't really the business of majors, although 
that business is shifting a little bit and certainly in different genres that could be said to have shifted. But for many years, independent labels were where we were, we were sort of the risk takers of the music industry and we were, we were where a new artist would go to put out their very first record ever. Um, nowadays, because it's so difficult to sell music and make money, um, a lot of times we're, we're letting artists mature on their own a little bit. Um, we've always, it's always been important to us that an artist is touring already by the time we get involved with them. We always say that it's on our website. Um, but now even more so, I think we need to really see commitment from an artist that they're serious about doing this with or without a label. Um, because it's a business that everybody wants to be in. And when you actually get into it, there's aspects of the job that a lot of people don't enjoy, right? A lot right. of people go on tour for the first time and they go, oh my God, that was horrible. Like, I hate sleeping on floors. I miss my girlfriend. I miss my boyfriend, like whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's just not for them. And we're just not in a position anymore to fund somebody's discovery process of whether or not they want this job. Right. Right. They have to have proven that this is a job they're going to do with or without us. Right. In my, I mean, that's what I, that's my standard. That's what I'd like. Right. So ideally we get people who have maybe put out one or two albums on their own already uh, with a new album. You know, they definitely, in general, we would like them to have a new album or they're writing one or they're ready to go into the studio and record a new album. Um. And then depending on what part of the process they're in, we'll just help them out to the best of our ability. We'll, you know, if they don't have a booking agent, we'll get them, a, we'll help, we'll try to help get them a booking agent. That was a tough, that was hard. For like seven years, we had trouble with that. It's been a little bit easier lately, but the booking in, in agency industry is another part of this industry that's just been in great upheaval in the last few years. Um, so we'll try to do that. We'll try to get them an agent. If they don't have one, we will... You know, if they, a lot of artists nowadays, because they've done a lot already, already have a good idea of what they want to do. So they may have a studio that they use regularly and a producer or an engineer, or they produce it themselves or whatever, or some of the, or they just know what they want. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we'll just pay for it. Like they know what they want, but we'll just pay for it. Or they come to us with an album they already made and they're like, here's the album. Like it's done. Can you put it out? Can you put it out? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we talk about the marketing strategy and how we want to unfold it. We make sure that there's going to be a tour. Um, we talk about videos, like, are we going to make any videos? Are we going to... My favorite conversation is always the, the pre-order merch bonus because I love making weird, silly, fun merch. Um, I think nowadays one of my favorite parts of the current music industry is how everybody is so much more open to fun stuff uh, in terms of, you know stuff you can sell on tour merch and and items and just like silly goofy entertaining things you know right. cooler pieces of clothing not just a straight t-shirt always you know yeah. just more i think people get it that they were like living in this like age of artifacts where when people buy stuff they actually want like to grab something so it's like if you want to you know do like a bikini with your fans with your band's logo on it like there are people who will totally buy that yeah. you know you should i did i bought one from a band see yeah yeah exactly right i don't, Speedo, I don't wear it but I, <laughs> but, but you I, own it i own it it's <laughs> exactly. hanging on the wall see it's it's all sorts of good stuff like that um what does a band what do you need to see from a band for them to be 
attractive? Do they have to have certain numbers on online? I know we talked a little bit about Spotify or YouTube or touring numbers. Is there something that you're looking for in particular? I would say, I mean, you know, people do weird things like buy services to try to bump up their numbers. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I would say more like it's a red flag if you go to somebody's um, paid, like let's say YouTube page, and there's five views mm. of a video or, or like 20 or something. Right. Because you're like, oh, this is just a band that nobody knows at all. Like they're, and maybe their mom watched it a couple times and like their friends, but like nobody, they don't have any traction yet. Like they're super, super early in what they're doing. Yeah. So I think you have to, you have to take that into account. Um, you know, I wouldn't, yeah, we don't, I mean, numbers is like sort of not our, our thing. Like we don't necessarily look at numbers, but I do think like low numbers are, are like a red flag or a little bit like what's happening. Um, I think, you know, getting on a label, a lot of people feel is the end of a journey when in fact it's the beginning of the journey. It's right. really one step, um, in what should be a much longer career. Um, I think the hardest part of doing this job is being able to know when people are serious and know when people have what it takes to do this as a career. Yeah. Um, because everybody says the same thing, which is, I love this job. It's all I ever want to do. I will tour like crazy. I will do all this stuff. And then 99% of them don't. Right. Um, it's too hard for one reason or another and they, and they can't do it. I think Filthy Friends is an amazing example of... Like, so these people are all above 40. They all have families and they've all been in successful bands in the past. And yet you cannot keep them out of a tour van. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. they are making records and going on tour in time where they could be in Acapulco or whatever or yeah. doing, you know, something completely different. And yet uh, they just love making music. They love being in bands um, and they love, you know, uh, collaborating with other artists and, and being on the road. So to me, they're a beautiful example of, of what you're looking for in the type of person that you're trying to work with. Because I think one thing that artists don't understand, and they shouldn't because they don't think about it, but if they were to think about it, I hope they'll understand it. It's like I get up in the morning every single day and I go to my office and I do this as my job. Like this is my job. So right. my job is trying to help artists succeed and in, in this industry, in the changing industry and like changing with the times to, to do that. So I, why would I work with anyone whose goal is anything less than that for their own band? Right. You know, it's like, I don't want to work with someone who's happy to do this band in their spare time, but they're going to keep doing their, you know, lucrative desk job. Because you're here all the time. Because I, this is my desk yeah, job, yeah. right? Which is more or less lucrative depending on whether or not you're going to put in the effort, you yeah. know, to, to work and do your part. Absolutely. So it's a, you know, it's, we, we're not making anyone anything that they weren't already, right. you know? Right. Just helping them along a little bit. We're, Thanks. you know, we can provide a lot of expertise. We can provide a lot of guidance. We can provide money. We can provide connections. We can provide all these things that you need, that an artist needs. Because an artist needs somebody to take care of the business part. And a label will do it. And nowadays people have managers who do it. They have teams who do it. Right. Um, but you know, somebody has to do your business. And so we do bring that to the table. Like we're here to be your business partner, basically. You're, yeah. You make the art and we help you 
market it and get it out there and right. advance to the next level. But we're not going to make that next level hap come to you. Yeah. Like while you're home watching, you know, doing Netflix and chill, we're going to make all this stuff happen for you. Right. <laughs> like that's, right. that's not the You case. have to already be doing it and working. You have to already a, be doing you're it. You're a part of the team. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about touring a little bit. Um, I know a lot of people don't do it anymore. Um, and I, I can't imagine not doing it cause I kind of love it, but I know a lot of people are, are, are doing other things and, uh, putting things up online and saying, Hey, we don't, we don't have to do that with a young band starting out. Um, are you a fan of them going on the road and doing it and figuring it out? But prior to having any sort of fan base, just going out and saying, okay, we're going to go book a show at a, a dive bar in Lincoln and Omaha and St. Louis and turn around and come back and we're going to crash on floors. You, it seems like you're an advocate for that sort of thing, correct? Well, absolutely, because I think that's how artists build a fan base. I, yeah. And I also believe in the live music experience. Like I believe that that's what I, why I fell in love with music in the first place too was you know seeing bands live i mean don't get me wrong i started listening to music when i was 10 i was kind of like an early adopter i was i loved listening to the radio um and i bought my first my first lp i guess it was an lp when i was 10 no i think it was probably a cassette there were we we did all cassettes when i was a kid um and but then i remember when i was 14 i saw my first show and it was like that was the moment where i was like oh shit, all this stuff I've been listening to on on my stereo is great, but when you see them perform this music live, it's like nothing else. Yeah. You know, it's it makes that music live in you in a totally different way because it was such an experience to see those people on stage and to have that communal sort of back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. And what advice would you have for a young band who's who's going out and touring to start and build that fan base if they're going out and playing shows all the time all over the country and and you know sometimes you play in omaha then you play again three months later and three months later and three months later and you're still having trouble getting some people out what advice would you give to an artist in that scenario to really start to build in that town well i mean i don't know if you should play every three months maybe like twice a year because mm -hmm. that'll that'll probably be you know you don't want to oversaturate a market um, I also think, you know, the hard, the hard ad advice and the hard truth for artists, I mean, no artist wants to hear this, but some artists need to hear it. Some artists aren't as good as other artists, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, you need to, you need to be convinced that you're doing the right thing, but you also need to pay attention to results, right? If, if you can't get a fan base, then probably you're not as good as you could be. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And maybe you need to go back to the drawing board and be like, well, what is the weak link? Like, is it that our drummer can't keep a beat because we really like him and he's really fun to party with, but um, he actually can't keep a beat. So maybe that's a problem for our music. You have no idea how many bands I've seen who won't, you know, won't get rid of their best buddy who plays bass or whatever because they're their best friend and they started this band together, but the person cannot actually play or right. is in other, some other way dragging down the band, you know? Right. Sure. They need to get rid of them, move on. Well, I mean, that's the heart. That's that's the decision the band always has to make, right? Are we doing this for fun, or are we doing this to make a living? Yeah, and and that's that's an important thing for bands. And it's okay to say we're just doing this for fun. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think a lot of artists have a really hard time being like, 
no, like if I'm not, if this isn't my career, if I'm not like chasing this with my full heart, then people are going to think less of me or something. And it's like, right. dude, if you just want to play with your two best friends and you play once a month in your local bar or whatever, that is awesome. Yeah. Live it, live La Vida Loca, like do it. But don't also <laughs> be like, and you know, in six months we're going to be Nirvana because that doesn't happen for almost anybody. Right. You know? And if it does happen like that, you're going to have to make some hard choices. And that's also things, you know, people don't want to make those hard choices. They want to have it be fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and easy. Um, we've all heard the stories in the about the artists in the 50s and 60s. Well, Elvis just showed up at the record label and he played every day for them until they agreed to give him a chance. Um, how much of that? still happens do you have people show up at the office and try to play are you getting sent demos all the time and do you do you listen to those or do you have someone that listens through to those i listen to demos i get demos a lot um i listen to demos i always feel a weird obligation to listen to a demo i don't know why i feel that way um That's and nice some <laughs> lately it's actually it's actually gotten a lot harder i would say to listen to demos because it's so easy to make something that sounds good yeah, the technology is so available now that it's it's you become, you know, it used to be that we would get demos that were super rough, right? And so what you were doing was listening for the song to sort of listen through the crappy production value to see if the song was there and if it was like a a really good song and the person had chops and stuff. Right. Um, now I think you get these slick production values where you're like, then you you have to do the exact same thing but like kind of the opposite. So it's like, I have to listen to see if this is in fact a good song because it sounds so pretty. Like it's so, it's so produced well. And you know, it's got all these like great instruments and everything. It's like, is this really a good song or is it just something, it's just an overproduced average song. Right. And also you have to, there has to be a body of work. Like I, I remember I have on a couple occasions gotten um, demos from people where I was like, oh, that sounds good. Like what else do you have? And they're like, no, that's it. Oh. And I'm like, oh, you only have one song? And they're like, yeah, what do you think? <laughs> I'm like, I think you should go write about 400 more songs. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Anybody, the truth is literally anybody can write one good song. So right. you have to you have to write hundreds and hundreds to find out if you actually have talent for this or if you just got lucky and you like wrote that you one wrote cool song. song. Well, so longevity, it sounds like it's a big thing before you get signed nowadays, before you're on a label or to reach any level of success is... Uh, proving it on a consistent basis. It's, totally, you know. totally. Well, that's, I mean, you know, even if we were talking about the major label system and we were talking about, I mean, the Grammys just happened and look at some of the artists on the Grammys. It's like no major label is going to get involved with someone because they wrote one good song. You right. know what I mean? They have to be able to be a career artist and, and have that drive and fire. Someone said this to me a few years ago and I've always really appreciated it um, because because it's not my world, so I, I wasn't thinking about it. And, and now that they pointed out, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're totally right. And they were like, okay, so think about the top 10, right? Like like literally the Billboard top 10 songs, right? Those 10 slots, the the 10 artists, you know, you're, you're going to see very, like, you're going to see Lady Gaga. You're going to see Katy Perry. Like, you're going to see these particular names. Don't think that Lady Gaga and Katy Perry don't desperately want to be number one more than they want to be number two or number three. Like yeah. those artists are just as invested, even though they're at a completely different level of the game. You know, nobody who is in the top 10 is at home lying on the couch with their feet up. 
You know what I mean? Right. They're not. They are working as hard as they possibly can. They've got management teams. They've got, you know, big labels pushing and pushing. But everybody is working super hard to achieve that thing, which looks to us down here in the real world like, oh, you know, whatever. They just got a number one. Like, they, that's, you know, is it that they're working harder or is it that the song is just better? Like, right. that's no, it's like these people are absolutely working like crazy and they do care about these things. So it's like the, the higher you get, I mean, I learned this as an artist manager years ago. The the high the the more popular you get, the more your workload intensifies. There's literally no such thing as I'm going to get famous and then relax. You know what I mean? Right. Which when I hear artists talk, even to this day, I still kind of hear. You know, I feel like everybody's always looking for that one thing that can I do this one thing and then I can relax. And it's like, if you have any interest in relaxing, you better go find some other kind of job because there's never going to be a relaxing time. I mean, I had an artist that did really well. They ended up going gold in the UK. And as soon as they were on magazine covers, guess what? We had drive time radio shows at 6 a.m. So it's like, and then it would be like a radio show at 6 and then an interview at 7 and then makeup and hair for the shoot at 11 you know what I mean? It was. It got busier. It got busier. It got crazier. And if you're if you're in any way thinking like, oh, I'm just going to do X and then it's going to be this cakewalk. Right. You're not in the right business. You need to go find a comfy desk job where you can leave at five and like go do whatever you want because th- that this is not it. It's it's right. all it's a consuming business. It's all consuming at all levels. Sure. And when and as you start to get to a higher level. Um, at what point do you try to start delegating tasks? I know you're going to just get busier and busier. Um, is there a certain point where an indie artist says, okay, you know what? It's time. I need to get some. I don't have management. I don't have a label right now, but I need to get somebody to help me out with uh, making show posters, and it's worth that investment or whatever. Just delegating some tasks out. Um, the artist is doing everything nowadays, which is... For real. Which is, And yeah. I actually enjoy it. I think it's, you know, it's... It's really cool uh, to learn a bunch of different tasks, but at times it also gets overwhelming. Um, and I wonder what can I delegate um, just to and and I feel like I need to do it all myself to get it done right the way I want it. But at a certain point, um, I I think things do need to be delegated out a little bit. Um, at what point do you think an artist can start giving tasks out a little bit and and still get? What am I trying to say here? Delegate tasks out a little bit, um, and still keep going on that upward on that upward plane. Well, what I always tell artists is, you know, you need a manager when you get when you have so much business to do that you can't actually do it all yourself. You right. can't keep up with that. That's when you need someone to come in and help you out. Um, and and you know, I I was in bands for years, and I was always the the business minded one. So I was always the one who was like booking shows and you know, figuring out how the art was going to be laid out and, you know, doing, you know, all these little tasks and things. Um, and I don't mean like that because those are, those are still just part of like your art, part of, part of your band and, and what you're doing. I mean, when like you're getting interview requests and you're going to be on the road and you, you know, you need this, you need that. And all of a sudden there's so much business that you can't do that and still just do your artist's job. Um, I think that's when you, you are like, wait, we need some help. And there's, you know, management can be like a friend, um, which is okay for a while. Right. 
uh, as long as that friend knows that it's possible that um, they may not be the person forever. Right. Um, if you if you, the band gets big enough, at some point you're probably going to have to hire someone who is already a manager. And the reason for that is connections, uh, because the the number one thing an artist can do, a manager can do for an artist is is provide connections. You know, when you have a big artist management company they're connected to a lot of different people. And so that's actually what they can give you. Um, someone to just do your business is like like to handle booking plane flights and stuff like that. That is like in a management company, you'll have like your manager and then your day-to-day person. And that day-to-day right. person is the person who does that kind of stuff. It's more like the, it's almost like a personal assistant type job. You know, this, sure. they're taking care of your business but it's the more low-level business. What you need from a, a real manager is, you know, a person who can get you connected to, let's say there's a brand that you feel really strongly about um, and you want to write music for that brand or you want to, like, be in that commercial or you want to have your music or whatever. Yeah. You know, you want to maybe get sponsored by them or, I don't know, something like that. Someone and They that's can go out and find that connection. Here's who we talk to. Yeah, or they have that connection, ideally. Right, right, sure. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Portland scene and what makes the Portland music scene unique. Well, it has thing about Portland the Portland music scene is when I first moved here like twelve years ago, um, it was it was a cool scene because everybody was sort of in each other's bands. And so you would find people, and I think this is still true, who were in like three or four different bands. One was a death metal band, one was a country band. You know what I mean? It was yeah. everybody's genres were were okay. Like genre overlap was totally fine. Like it, people were just zooming around and and doing um, a lot of different types of things, which I think is really cool. And I think it also speaks to the talent pool. There's a lot of people who are really talented and can play a lot of different types of stuff. Um, I'm not sure. I think that that's still mostly true um, around here. But I feel like we've had a lot of economic pressures in Portland because this is a city that's gentrifying quickly or whatever they call that, where they force out, you know, brown people and um, poor people and they start building lots of condos and high rises and, and bringing in like richer white people right. to live there. So, you know, when I moved here, this was a city where a band could, you know, you could have a nice sized room in a house for, you know, three or $400 a month which was great because you could either sublet the, that to someone when you went on tour or you could, you know, still make that payment if you needed to. Um, it was an affordable city to be a touring band from. Yeah. I think that that has really contracted. Um, this band, Horse Feathers, that I mentioned before, they used to live here and they've now moved to Astoria. A lot of bands have moved to Astoria in the last few years. Astoria is on the coast and it's, um, it's a great, cool little town. But it's also, it has been much cheaper. Now, it, of course, is skyrocketing yeah. in value. The home values there are just out of control. Um, so, you know, it, I think that that is the story of uh, music cities. I mean, I grew up in New York City, and I, I played in bands in the late 90s. And that was when the music scene was still on the Lower East Side. And we had a practice space on the Lower East Side wow. in a building that now, I believe, <clears throat> is condos that would cost you a million dollars to buy. <laughs> and I mean, it was crappy. You know, we're not joking around. It was full on Lower East Side, you know, lots of cockroaches and weird mm -hmm. creatures. And um, 
And I'm still blown away by the fact that, you know, during my tenure there, the entire music business moved out to Brooklyn because it was cheaper. It was in Williamsburg at first, and now it's moved even farther into Brooklyn. It's like in Bushwick, which is right. far. Um, so that's sort of, but that's how the scenes go. You know, it's like for a while you can have a, a cool music scene in a town where it's affordable for bands to live, and you can be a barista or you can be a bartender and you can still afford to be an, an artist. Right. And then those cities get um, whitewashed or whatever the hell we're calling it and uh, and prices everybody out. Right. So I feel like that's where we're at right now in the Portland music scene, unfortunately. Okay. Um, and I want to hear about a couple of the artists you're excited about on your label, too. Um, who's who's Who are you about to release? What's going on? Well, we've got the Filthy Friends record coming out in May. Okay. Um, which is great, and we just released the first single yesterday via Rolling Stone, which was fun. Um, nice. And uh, we had a great record last year from a local Portland band called Lithics. They're a post-punk band, um, and I'm really excited. I'm so happy. There seems to be this like post-punk revival going on right now, and that's some of my favorite, favorite music, so I'm very excited to hear the stuff that's coming out from all all over the country. A bunch of bands like that are springing up and they're just sounding so awesome. So I've been really enjoying that. Great. Well, I think that's that's all I've got. Um, cool. Thank you so, so much for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. We'll talk to you later. Thanks. There you have it, my conversation with Portia Sabin. I want to say a quick thanks to our sponsor, PQ Mastering. Patrick at PQ Mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast. For any of your audio or restoration needs, you can go to his website, www.pqmastering.com, to contact him or to find out more information. I want to play out this episode with a song from Porsche's band from the 90s called The Hissy Fits. They have an album called Letters from Frank that's on Spotify. And the song I'm going to play is Giant Ants, which is a Blondie cover. If you've listened to the last couple episodes, you know that my hotel room at the Crystal Hotel in Portland was entirely Blondie-themed. I think it's just it just goes around in a nice circle. Portia was the drummer and sang backup vocals in that band. So we're going to play out with Giant Ants from the Hissy Fits right now. That's all for me. If you liked what you were hearing, please rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. For any questions, comments, concerns, uh, or hate mail, you can get a hold of me at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks.